Second Kings chapter 23, a beautiful thing about our faith is that you can go anywhere in Scripture and be to- in total agreement with any song about Christ. At the Christmas season, you can, you can preach on Leviticus, you can preach on Job. It's all about Jesus Christ. This evening's title is Pulverizing Paganism. And uh, tried to say that without popping the peas. We're going to get a look at how to deal with lies about God. We cannot in- implement the identical measures in the physical sense, but we certainly can spiritually. As total intolerance for things that are flat out lies about God. And we come in touch with them all the time. We know what happens when they're not checked, they continue to spread. And we're watching this evil spread across the land. Josiah is the king. We began his story last session. And uh, his reign takes place as the great evil Assyrian empire is in decline. And that allowed him to expand in more uh, further north out of Judah's territory into what was once Israel's territory, and where he continued to smash the icons. This Josiah instituted worship, or I should say reinstituted worship amongst the people, according to Deuteronomy, uh, the book of the law that was found because they had lost it and lost in a sense they had to hide it there was so much idolatry amongst the people and the kings which comes out in this section also so we're going to get the impact of scripture on the king which as we mentioned last session was not wasted on this man then he will stand and make a commitment and call for the people to share in that commitment the word being covenant And then he proceeds to eradicate the land of idols as best as a human being can. And then he celebrates the Passover. This is one of the things, these are some of the things that make this one of the greatest kings of all the Jews. Of course, David is the standard. He remains the standard. And we'll cover that when we get to a verse. But I need to move on because there's a lot of verses here. In verse 1, now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of Yahweh with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which he had found in the house of the Lord, which had been found. He, He didn't find it. Hilkiah the priest found it. But this is all because, again, of the scripture. When he heard the word of God read to him, he was moved in his heart. He demonstrated that. He went into action. And he wanted everybody to hear what he heard. I remember when I was converted to Christ, I couldn't wait to tell people what I was reading in the Bible. I thought I was going to be uh, applauded. They roll out the red carpet. Who, who in their right mind would resist what I what I'm telling them? But it was the other way. I lost a lot of friends. God gave me many more better friends. Josiah is not going to allow this 
finding of the Word of God to just stop right there. Oh, we found the Bible. Okay, next order of business. That is not what he's going to do. And so he calls for a national reading of Scripture, a national covenant, and a national Passover. This was something that the entire kingdom was involved with, even though there is still a mixed multitude. A lot of these churchgoers are frauds. They're playing along with it. Because when Josiah dies, the nation just plunges into idolatry again, which brings the judgment. God is certainly on top of this. But on the other hand, there were many people who were so refreshed by this righteous king. So you have the devout and you have the insincere, citizens of the kingdom. Some people go to church to hear what they want to hear. Others go to hear what God wants to say to them. And that is, that is a big deal. So rich or poor, all classes are here. It says here in verse 2, the priests and the prophets and all the people. Well, Jeremiah was in that number, likely Zephaniah the prophet also, who has a book by, that, by his name. Uriah the prophet, who was hunted in, in Egypt and brought back to Judah, and there he was slain. But that happens much later. It says here in verse 2, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Again, he did not waste his treasure. Isn't it, isn't it shameful for someone to own a Bible and never to have read from it? Now, it is a, clearly he did read from Deuteronomy. The whole story points to that. But it is possible that he read from Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 34. Well, some of Deuteronomy 34 wasn't yet put in uh, at the time that Moses was writing the lore. Someone had to write about his death. In the book of Nehemiah, we have this another revival slash reformation going on in Israel. Nehemiah was the man in charge. If you need to know about leadership, how to follow or how to be, Nehemiah is an excellent first stop. And in the eighth chapter, we read, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Well, they didn't have wristwatch then or pocket watches. So they couldn't keep checking their watch and say, how much longer before this is over? They stayed and they gave attention to the reading of the law for hours. I don't say that to lay guilt on us. It is a fact that we, I don't think we should sidestep either. It says here in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, So they read distinctly from the book of the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's expositional teaching. Then you come to Chronicles 35, which is a parallel passage of what we have in front of us this evening. Later, after this, where we are in verse 1 and 2, when the Passover, we get to the Passover, we read, Josiah kept a Passover to Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the fourth month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of Yahweh. 
I mean, he's just—he's got this king encouraging them. Serve God. This is real. This is not fake. This is not make believe. In verse three, we continue back in Second Kings. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to follow Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that are written in the book in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. I mean, it's just amazing. This part where he stands by the pillar. I, this choice was not by mistake. And uh, it was intentionally symbolic and profound at the same time. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and the ground of the truth. That is what the church is supposed to be. Paul summed it up concisely in 1 Timothy 3.15. Uh, now, we remember Jehoiada, the, that gallant priest, who he and his wife saved the life of King Joash. And when it was time to announce that they saved his life, because the wicked Athaliah, his grandmother, didn't know he survived, when it came time for them to roll him out and anoint him king, we pick up in 2 Kings 11, when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to the custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were there by the king. Well, they herald him the king. So my point, this pillar, these pillars at the temple, because it's a Temple of Solomon still stands. Babylonians haven't come yet. This is probably one of the two pillars, Jachin and Boaz, that stood outside of the temple, which apparently had no physical structural value. They were just symbolic. But when we say just symbolic, we mean it in its highest form. Uh, these were, were marks of of God and the word of God and the covenant with the people, the statutes, the laws, the testimonies, the commandments. And that's what he says here, to follow Yahweh, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes. Three different terms for God's word to the people. And that is picked up in other passages, such as in Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is perfect. You know, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And so you, you have this echo that highlights how profound God's word is to us. An easy proof of how profound God's word is, is look at all the effort Satan puts into making you think it's not profound. Look at all the effort Satan puts into making people think that God's word is flawed or has a, it's not trustworthy. Well, it's, it continues here. He says, with all his heart and soul. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. The Jews called the Shema, which they would recite daily, the devout Jews. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. and He's an absolute compound God. That's what the Hebrew words mean in that. Which is sort of a, a, a precursor to the Trinity, to the Godhead. And Jesus picks it up in Mark 30, uh, Mark 12.30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6. He says here again in verse 3, To perform the words of this covenant 
that were written in the book. Well, doers of the word, Romans 1.22 and James 2.13. Don't be hearers only, do the word. Set your life to try to get it done. I think we all fear because we have our weaknesses, those areas where we struggle. But then there are other areas we, we, we don't struggle, we, we excel. And uh, we should excel with, with zeal. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Well, many of them caught up in the emotions, the passions of the moment. But in their heart, their idols are just within hand's reach. And they will go for them when this king is dead. Had they believed, had they believed when they heard these scriptures and continued to believe that God's word is inerrant, they would have continued standing Because he says, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. But then the time comes when they stop. And same today, you have somebody that's all so thrilled with with Christianity and the Bible, and then they become a backslider and an apostate. Somebody whispered in their ear, don't trust it, and they were foolish enough to believe it. Well, that comes with consequence. In Ephesians 6, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all to stand, stand therefore. You you love that language. It's a defiant language. It defies what's wrong with everything, which is the curse. The curse is on creation. The curse is is on the people of creation. It was real to Josiah. The reading, the opening of the verses... But Jeremiah is going to tell us, again, it was only skin deep for so many of them. Jeremiah 3.10. And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says Yahweh. So God saw through it. He saw the ones that were just faking it. In verse 4, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the articles that were made for Baal, for Ashtoreth, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. <laughs> He's present for much of this. It's not just delegating. Many times we read, and, you know, and he built the wall, you know, well, it wasn't him. He, he ordered it, and the laborers did it. But Josiah, he is present for much of this uh, pulverizing of paganism and in its icons. He's not demoting the idols. He's demolishing them. He's not assigning them as museum pieces, but he is annihilating them. You see, we have people that seeking to be wise, becoming fools, they think that, oh, we'll take these artifacts of voodoo and witchcraft and we'll just make nice, you know, accent peaches, pieces for your living room. It's an abomination. It was an abomination to God and it should be an abomination to us. And you go to someone's house, you see these spooky things up on the wall, the Mardi Gras junk, you call it out. Be ready to lose the friend. Be ready for a fist fight. You know? <laughs> Hopefully not. But if it happens, may God be with you. Verse 5, Then he removed the idolatrous priest, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn on the high places in the cities of Judah, and in the places all around Jerusalem, 
And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and all the host of heaven. Interesting, that Hebrew word, there's two words in the English, the idolatrous priest. Well, in the Hebrew, it's a single word. And it's believed that word means scorched and has something to do with their black robes, the idolatrous priests wearing the black robes. In contrast, or as opposed to the priests of Yahweh who wore white robes, as something to think about, um, there's enough evidence to, to, to lean that way. You know, the Bible doesn't come out with explicit statements for us because of the generations, the cultural change. But for those that were alive at the time these things were written, they understood. They knew what was going on. Um, it's sort of be like writing, writing about texting somebody 40 years ago. I mean, would have no knowledge of that. You'd need someone with some history to, to kind of lay it out. Anyway, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense. So here they are. They're desecrating their own constitution. There were these priests in Judah... They Levitical priests, but they were not serving at the temple. Well, the temple was taken over by the, the Baal worshippers, but they continued to serve as priests at the high places. Well, this was forbidden. There's no auxiliary altars. It wasn't, well, okay, if we can't offer sacrifices in Jerusalem, we'll just do it over here. Well, that was, uh, and they're going to be penalized for that, and Josiah's going to go a little easy on them. Uh, Zephaniah writes about these things in his first chapter. It says, Whom the kings of Judah ordained to burn incense. Well, the people, they fawned over these demonic renderings of deity, provoking the true God, the Creator, of course. Verse 6, And he brought out the wooden image from the house of Yahweh to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it in the brook Kidron, and ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. He was, this man is just on this mission, his cause, his crusade. Here he is. He, this stuff is in the house of the Lord. He grounds it to ashes. He pulverizes it. Great contempt for every false representation of God that existed. And this because they found the word of God. And what happened on a national level can happen on an individual level. A person finds the Word of God, and really the Word of God finds them. There's so much more to say about these things. Verse 7, Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of Yahweh, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. Paul talks about, or gives an overview of this kind of behavior in Romans 1, that they knew who God was, but they threw it away, and they got into also. They were turned over to their lewd behavior. Here, these ritual booths are portable chambers set up at the house of God, the temple of Solomon, for the lewd acts of sexual religion or religion that included sexual practices to worship Ashtoreth, and uh, it was steeped in perversity. They were, uh, here we have brothels nested in God's house where it says of the perverted persons. This goes back to Deuteronomy. I'll get to that in a second. But these were men wanting to be as much like their goddess Asherah, Asherah as they could be. 
to the point of behaving like women. These were the first transsexuals, you could say. This transition from being a, behaving and being a man to trying to be a woman. And this was, there was, this was homosexuality. The perverted pe- persons. And, uh, well, f- take New Testament first. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And the word sodomites there in the Greek is the, the effeminate men who want to be women. Verse uh, Deuteronomy twenty three seventeen: There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. And there it is, forbidden. That he's talking about uh, sexual rituals in their worship of. Of the idols. Ashtoreth, you know, she's the goddess of fertility. Well, that's when the sexual activity comes in. Romans 1, likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. The consequences, the judgment. And so we are hated by the sexually militant people today. You have no right to disagree with them. In fact, you better honor them or suffer the consequence. And so we have it now that you, you, if you're going to be in the workplace, you, you have to watch it. You don't use the word homosexual because they have made it a euphemism in their term gay. Uh, you know, the old songs and old movies, you know, I was happy and gay. Now you say that has a whole other meaning. Uh, I would advise don't give them that. Uh, don't refer to it as being gay because there's nothing gay about it in the eyes of God. This is not self-righteousness. Josiah was not self-righteous for pulverizing pagan idols that had overtaken the house of God. It says where the woman wove hangings for the wooden image. If you were to say to Jesus Christ... When he walked, Lord, do you think Josiah was right? What do you think he would say? Absolutely, I'm the one that sent him. These women were making decorations, tapestries, to adorn their fake gods, to help promote them. Ezekiel talks about a lot of this stuff. He comes later. Verse 8, and he brought... All the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. So again, these are Levitical priests from various cities in Judah who had conducted worship at these various high places throughout the land, which, again, was forbidden. They were not allowed to serve outside of the Jewish temple any sacrifices or offerings to the Lord. Well, they couldn't serve at the temple itself either. And so they engaged in unauthorized worship. You find this in Christianity. You find Christians making excuses for things that God has clearly forbidden. Yeah, but, you know, to get people saved, no, it won't. You two wrongs will make a right. I mean, even the world has a 
proverb for that. Doing anything that was unclean, uh, it was accountable to the Lord. And Josiah, he was doing anything he could do to render the unclean contemptuous. Where he says from Geba to Beersheba is idiomatic throughout the land of Judah. When Israel was one kingdom, it was from Beersheba to Dan, the northernmost tribe. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. Now, they had lucky charms on the gates, shrines as you entered the city, as you left the city. This one is by the mayor, mayor's house, probably of the city of Beersheba. Verse 9, nevertheless, the priest of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. So Josiah recalls them to Jerusalem, the priests who served at these various high places. And because they practiced semi-idolatry, which is idolatry, uh, they were disqualified from service at the temple of God. They were treated much like the priest, according to the Levitical law in chapter 21 of Leviticus. If a priest had a bodily defect or a handicap, could not serve. But he wasn't cut off either. He was still, provisions were made for him to feed him because the, the priest lived off of the, the offerings. And so he treats them, he bars them from further service, but he gives them a share of the unleavened bread, verse 10. And he defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Well, that's this is human sacrifice, which is disgusting and vile on any level. But when you do it to children who can't even defend themselves, it takes it, it's just demonic. When when human in, when human beings behave this way, it is not just sin; it is demonic sin. There is a there are spiritual entities that are pulling strings inside the lives of people who are engaging in this. This valley of Tophet, it's, you know, around Jerusalem is an elevated city. And it has the the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley, and they they come together. And that Hinnom Valley today is very beautiful. It's a pasture and sheep. And you look at that and you say, man, they, they were offering child sacrifices there routinely in the days of the kings. It's real stuff. Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, these guys were all sending, their, uh, not all of their children, but some of their children to these hellish places. Jeremiah 7.31, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. God says, I never even thought of such a thing as this. Now, the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom, when it becomes used in, translated into the Greek, becomes Gehenna. Gehenna is the valley, the same, the Valley of Hinnom. In the days of Christ, that's where they burned the trash and the rubbish. They weren't doing the child sacrifices there by that time, but they, when the Jews came back from Babylon, that became where they would dispose of rubbish. And so the fires burned hot all the time. So this is this picture of fire, <laughs> 
a picture of hell. Christ used it, used the word, it shows up 12 times in the New Testament. Christ uses it 11 times. James uses it once. And each one is referring to hell, Gehenna, the judgment of God on the soul. So a very serious picture here. In verse 11, then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun and the, at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. They have, archaeologists have discovered little, you know, hammerings of little horses with the sun on them, you know, they're just the, the pagan idols. This, uh, and they found them in, in Jerusalem and in other places too. And the horses to the pagans symbolize the means of the gods and traveling across the heavens, much like the horse of Thor. At the entrance of the house of Yahweh, and so, again, there are demonic shrines. Here, David laid out his heart into the development of the temple of God. And this is what's happening to it. Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen. So when we say these are demonic, it's because God says they're demonic. There's, Paul brings it up in 1 Corinthians, but I'll just quote Deuteronomy. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals. Johnny-come-latelys. They're not eternal. They just came along when people made them up. And this by the house of a civil authority, a person in a civil office. Well, you know, you have politicians that are in total anti-Christ, anti-God. Verse 12, the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of Yahweh, the king broke down and pulverized there. And threw their dust into the brook Kidron. <laughs> well, this is how you do it. This is how you deal with lies. You pulverize them with truth. And the truth is, these gods couldn't protect their little images. Um, this is, you know, we mentioned the last two times, I think, in Kings, how infested the land of Judah was with idolatry. And here we're seeing it. It's being detailed for us. Verse 13, then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built to Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Well, Solomon had wives from all these places, and he wanted to, look, I don't believe in that stuff, but, you know, if it'll make you happy, here you go. And, you know, Solomon prided himself. He's quite the statesman, and he was just uh, totally deceived. He introduced these spiritual viruses to Jerusalem, and they could never get them out. God had to do that when he sent them to Babylon. That, that dealt with idolatry in the Jews, but then they had other issues. But here's an interesting play on words, the Mount of Corruption. You say, well, where is that on the map? What's the Mount of Olives? Where Solomon built shrines of the pagan gods, according to 1 Kings 11, verse 7. So the Hebrew play on words, the Hebrew name for the Mount of Olives or the Mount of Ointment, you get the crushed the olives, you get the oil. It's Har Harmishka, 
But the Hebrew for Mount of Corruption is Har Hamishkith. So you see the slight little play. I mean, we can pick it up phonetically. We can hear it and say, okay, it's, instead of Ka, it's Kith. It's quite a clever insult, which the writers of Kings and Chronicles and, and the prophets were notorious for doing, insulting the pagan, pagan idols and emblems. Verse 14, And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of dead men. He did not care who was offended. <laughs> in fact, if you were offended for offending God, you'd get in trouble around Josiah. You better keep that under your hat. Uh, you know, it's, it's odd. We hear Christian conservatives saying, we want politicians who stand up and say what they mean. And, and then when they go to Washington and they cave and they're disgusted, but then they get a pastor who will stand up and preach what he believes, and they get offended. He goes, I mean, it's just sin is everywhere. Where does trouble come from? I mean, where does it come from? Is there like a little trouble cloud that moves around and rains on people? Think of, when you think about it, I mean, some trouble self-inflicted, self-induced, but other troubles, like, man, it's like a blanket of darkness, like a fog that rolls in, and it is spiritual. And it, sometimes you have, to, you have to identify, is this God or is this the devil? Is God doing a work or is Satan, has he gotten access? Verse 15, moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, the high place, which Jer- Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin, <laughs> they always put that in there, that he is probably one of the most disliked people in the Bible, by the people in the Bible had made both the altar and the high places he broke down and burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. So there he is pulverizing it again, verse 16. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar, and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. (laughs) So there we see him there. He, is, he turned and he saw. He's present. He is in the field with, with the troops. This is the fulfillment of about a 300-year prophecy. I mean, if it was, if it was a 50-day prophecy fulfilled, it would be impressive. But this is, you know, three centuries old. goes back to 1 Kings 13. Then he cried out, this is the man of God. He came, Jeroboam built that altar in Bethel, and the man of God was sent up, and he pronounced judgment, and God said, don't go anywhere, don't go back the same way you came, don't stop to eat with anybody. He disobeyed God, and the lion killed, you know, you might know the story. So here's what we read in 1 Kings 13. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of Yahweh, and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, behold a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And here it is, being fulfilled. And that that prophet is still referred to as the man of God. Just because he suffered the consequence of disobedience and poor judgment combination, he's still a man of God. God doesn't call him the backsliding prophet like, like he does Balaam. And Josiah, he's personally involved in cleansing the land. It's personal with him. 
John the Apostle in his first letter, how does he end that letter? We should never trivialize this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. They're still around. False representations of deity. They're always out of hell. Even if men claim credit, they're from hell through that individual and and out to whatever source that uh, they have in mind. Anyway, whatever goals. Verse 17. And he said, what gravestone is this that I see? So he's, he's on it, man. He's scanning the area. So the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Well, it's remarkable how some people knew the prophecy, but Josiah didn't know. He, he, he missed church that sermon, and he didn't hear about it. I don't, it's because the, we didn't have the word of God like we have the word of God. And certainly in his upbringing in the palace, uh, it, you know, they didn't get it. Somewhere there was a, a, a gap. It's so easy to disbelieve God's word. You know what an unbeliever, would, a, a militant unbeliever would say about this? Ah, oh, they wrote that in afterwards. Yeah, well, we got about a hundred other prophecies that nobody could have written in after. What do you say about them, beanhead? So, I mean, you say it in love. <laughs> you know, much of what is prophesied in Revelation, we don't really understand. But those who will be living through it, they're going to get it. They're going to be able to go right to Revelation. This is just what was said by John in the Revelation. We are increasing our knowledge. One of the exciting things, I haven't been able to do a study on Revelation since these new technological advances. So now when you talk about a lot of these creatures, the teeth like a dragon and hair like a woman, all these, you know, these could be drones dressed up. I mean, the stinger was in their tail. It's not these real creatures, the mutant creatures. <laughs> well, this is an island off of, right off of Connecticut and Long Island, the end tip of Long Island in New York. And it's, um, it's an island where they have a lot of scientific experiments and, and animals, and there's a lot of lore about mutant creatures. There, It's, it's lore. It's not real. Anyway, I'm, I digress. How encouraged you must have felt to hear that you have been named by God 300 years before by the bones, <laughs> the man that owns these bones, this prophet, for this high work. Psalm 139 Verses 2 through 4. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. In other words, before you even think of it, long before God knows it. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, that you know altogether. God, it's, it's as though he is, if I could just say it this way, it's like he's this, incredibly spiritual computer that can sense everything before it, e- before it even happens. He's so plugged in, so intelligent. It, it, it goes beyond, you know, you, if, if, you can, if you can exhaust in explanation your God, you got the wrong God. That we, God is beyond our comprehension, or complete comprehension. There's much about him we can get, though. Verse 18, And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So 
the bones of the prophet of Judah who pronounced a curse on this altar that Josiah is destroying and the bones of the priests that are being burned as prophesied. And the prophet who lied to the prophet and got him killed. And I mean, that guy irritates me. Uh, the, the, the old prophet of Bethel, that's who he is. And he's in 1 Kings 13. It's a picture of him there too, I think. Anyway, verse 19. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke Yahweh to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. So he ground those of powder. Verse 20. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them and returned to Jerusalem. So you want to offer up little children? We're going to offer you up and their bones. I mean, just total disgust at what was going on in Israel. And you're just amazed that when his son, Jehoiakim, becomes king, he's a vile, disgusting creature too. And the things they did to Jeremiah, just so, why? Because he didn't agree with them. Verse 19, so Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were, did I read that? Yes? Thank you. So we're at verse 21, correct? Just checking. It's all one verse to me. Uh, Verse 21. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. So first he finds the scripture. He makes the people pledge allegiance, make that commitment and covenant. He goes to work on the idols, purging the land. And then he comes back and says, now we're going to celebrate God delivering us from the death in Egypt, from the slavery in Egypt. And they're going to commemorate Yahweh's deliverance. More details about this are given in 2 Chronicles 35, where it's the parallel account. And it's worth reading. It's exciting to see how Josiah encourages not only the priests, but also the Levites Verse 22, such a Passover surely has never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Verse 23, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before Yahweh in Jerusalem. So he's 26 years old now. He, came, he became king at 8 years old. Moreover, uh, no, 36 years, sorry. Verse 24, moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spirits, spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which are written in the book of Hilkiah the priest, that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Remember, this, this was their national constitution to obey God. Their constitution was Genesis to Deuteronomy. And expanded with the prophets, of course, which were in total agreement with it. And so he has every right to do this as king. These people were breaking the law of God, which was the law of their land. Um, there's never been a country like this. There's never been a people or a nation like this. And it is an honor for the Christian Gentile to uh, be a part of all of this. As Paul was trying to tell the Gentiles, uh, they held the oracles of God's word. You wouldn't have the Old Testament if it weren't for them. 
So Josiah is a fundamentalist. He lived under the authority of Scripture. I am a fundamental Christian. I believe in every word of the Scripture. I don't agree with every interpretation of the Scripture. But I believe in the Scripture nonetheless. So he expels the occultists, people in touch with the demon world. They call it the spiritual world. You can watch old movies and you see them having seances. And you just say to yourself, you know, even then, nothing new under the sun. People are just impressed by this nonsense. The household gods and idols that he mentions here as abominations in the land, teraphim, are the household idols. Common throughout the history, you know, Rachel had them, Jacob's wife. They show up, of course, in Judges 17 and Samuel. It's just all over the place. They had become almost like a rabbit's foot with some people. Verse 25, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Well, of course, David's not in this class. You, there's no way you're going to take one verse and say, Josiah was the best, and just wipe away all the other verses about David. It's, it's, it's not a competition. Josiah was a righteous king. And of all the kings after David, he, the, the writer is saying Josiah was the greatest reformer. Because David had nothing to reform. Uh, it wasn't that they were so much into idolatry in David's times. They were ignorant. There was some idolatry, of course. But they, they were ignorant of who Yahweh was. And David, when they came out to follow David, he taught them about God. His psalms are, are sermons and they are textbooks. Psalm 119 alone is a textbook, about as long as one. And it's just remarkable what David did. Uh, so not to take away from Josiah, but he certainly ain't going to take away from David. Only David is associated like, there's no other man in all the Bible associated with Messiah as King David. And uh, I think it's wonderful. I love that. I love King David uh, because I can identify with him uh, probably uh, the most. I wish I could say that it was Daniel <laughs> or jo- or. Joseph, because they were extraordinary men. But when it comes to the kings, David is, he is the man. Verse 26, Nevertheless, Yahweh did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, which, with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Well, Manasseh had a long reign. He was a monster. He turns to God in the end, but the damage was done. He is Josiah's grandfather, incidentally. Uh, So uh, the people were now irretrievable. They had passed a point of return as a kingdom. Uh, Many of them, I said, are righteous. Well, Daniel's going to be one of them taken off to to Babylon. Ezekiel, there are other righteous men there. It's just not the majority. Verse 27 then Yahweh said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, will cast them off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Well, you had the Antiluvians, those in the days of Noah that perished in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the northern kingdom, and soon the southern kingdom, all testimony. There's this, this monument of judgment uh, to come. The Canaanites were judged because of their iniquity. Verse 28, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Verse 29, In his days Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went 
to aid the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. Well, this is a tragic thing. The story is in Second Chronicles 35, more detail. Necho's telling him, leave me alone. It's not your fight. I don't want to kill you. And Josiah was just determined to prove himself on the battlefield and killed him. And I guess he didn't, he didn't see it coming. He didn't factor in the king's archers, his bodyguards, and they killed him. So here, Necho, Pharaoh Necho, is responding to Assyria under attack from Babylon. Assyria is going to lose. This is when Babylon now comes to power. Josiah going to support Babylon, wanting to be rid of the Assyrians, and uh, maybe even thinking, well, I'm going to be part of Nahum's fulfillment of prophecy, because Nahum, you know, uh, Jonah comes along, he pronounces doom on Nineveh, they repent, no judgment. Then Nineveh comes a hundred years later, because uh, Nahum comes a hundred years later, because Nineveh has gone back to their evil, and, and even worse, and he pronounces their doom. And Josiah may have thought, well, you know, Nahum said they're going to get it. Well, I want to be part of that. Maybe he thought, but he had no leading from the Lord. None of that is mentioned. His meddling was personal, and it was political, and uh, it was a mistake. And I don't think there's any way around it. Not that God loved him less, or, you know, he blew it with the Lord. It's just that God said, well, you know, I need you. I kind of need you out of the way anyway, because I need to put judgment on these people. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to read Second Chronicles 35, 22 through 23, which gives us more detail. Uh, so he's killed in action for being where he does not, where he did not belong, and that's really the only asterisk next to his name and in, in the way of fault. Verse 30 that we know of. Verse 30. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his tomb, in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in, their, in his father's place. Uh, Josiah had four sons. Within 25 years of his death, the kingdom of Judah will be a past thing. There'll be no more. Verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamuthal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. This is not the prophet Jeremiah from Anathoth. He never married, incidentally. Jeremiah 16 tells us that. Um, verse, God told him, don't get married. Verse 32, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. No way. <laughs> yeah. Verse 33, now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land tribute of 100 talents of silver and the talent of gold. So the judgment begins. It's not like, it's not, see Josiah, you messed up, and now they're a feudal state of, of Egypt. No, it's, it's God got you out of the way. He promised you would go to your grave in the peace of not seeing Jerusalem taken and, and yet, with him out of the way, the judgment begins. Verse 34, Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father, Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim, 
And Pharaoh took Jehoiaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So he goes to Egypt, a prisoner. He only reigned for three months. <clears throat> Pharaoh, you know, these, these people were well-versed in politics, and, and they just knew what they were doing to be mean <laughs> and get power. But Necho takes Jehoiaz um, and makes him king, send, uh, well, takes him to Egypt, and Jehoiakim, his brother, is now king probably to help destabilize Judah because the people wanted Jehoiaz. I don't know why he was wicked, but they get Jehoiakim. And that's going to create some friction. Good, they'll stay off balance is Egypt's position. He changed his name to Jehoiakim. So he changes his name from God is setting up to the Lord raises up and probably thinks that this is a good move with the people. But he's when, and we get this from chronicles he's actually saying yahweh has appointed me to do this and you read again we don't have time to go into second chronicles 35 where he makes that very clear pharaoh necho does well it says pharaoh took jehoiaz and went to egypt and he died there and jeremiah in chapter 22 would say don't weep for him don't weep for the one gone to egypt he's not coming back but you better weep for yourselves because now the judgment's coming. Verse 35, so Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh and he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Uh, Jeremiah writes about this. He says, yeah, but Jehoiakim lived high on the hog. He taxed the people, but he had a palace, and he just lived the luxurious life and oppressed the people. So verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old, so he's the older brother of Jehoiaz. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabuda, the daughter of that guy there from Rumah. Now, um, the Chronicles doesn't name the... The, the, the mothers, but Kings does. Kind of interesting personal touch. It demonstrates they had, they still had a lot of personal, or the records, the archives. Verse 37, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. So in his 11 year reign, Judah gets more and more in trouble with the surrounding nations until she's, she's gone. Jeremiah exposes this creepy king as despicable. And we close with this verse from Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah became a prophet when Josiah was already king. And he was, of course, a prophet for a, throughout that kingdom and on. Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetedness for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. And so that's just a concise commentary on this king Jehoiakim, if we were in the book of Jeremiah, we would be getting a lot about him and then his creepy sons uh, and, and his other fam family members. Let's pray. Our Father, your word never fails to build us up, straighten us up, encourage us, and we thank you for it. May we all get home safely tonight, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen.